Hi there. This is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. inside of which the life-giving power of human sexuality can be safely expressed. And because marriage is the platform on which a stable family is built. And because sexual expression naturally results in children by God's specific design. The primary responsibility of the husband and the wife, then, is to raise those children from birth to maturity in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Did you know that raising children is nothing less than the shaping of the bodies and the souls of humanity? That's why marriage and childbearing are so important. And I trust that in God's good providence, Each one of you will be granted the joy of holding your own infants in your arms. You will be changed by it. You will be matured through it. You will be led to the greatest and the deepest self-sacrifice because of your fierce love for your own little ones. You will experience life's highest joys and deepest sorrows. And in it all, you will be fulfilling the scriptures. Because at the creation, God first made a male, and then he made a female from the very flesh and bone of the male. And then he brought the female to the male and married them on the spot. And in doing this, he himself created marriage and family and culture. And then God said to that first couple, Therefore, or because mankind is made as male and female, the female taken from the very flesh and bone of the male, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they, in other words, the male and the female, shall be one flesh. And these words establish the normal pattern of human life and set it into motion. And it's still happening today, just like that. Now, why in the world am I spending so much time on this in a message about the advent of Christ? Why would I encourage you to hold the infant in your arms? It's because Christ also came into the world through a conception and a pregnancy and a birth in the context of a betrothal and a marriage. In the wisdom of the Father, the Son came into the world as a helpless infant, in the the arms of a godly young man and woman, and they raised him to maturity. If Mary didn't nurse him, he would die. There was no formula. 
If Joseph didn't protect him and provide for him, he would die. If Joseph didn't act to protect him from certain political authorities, he would be, mur he would be murdered. So just like you and I, he needed the loving care of a mother and a father 24-7 until he reached maturity. So, let's hold on to marriage and childbearing with one hand and grab a hold of the advent of Christ and bring them together. Remember, Joseph was preparing to leave father and mother to be joined to Mary as his wife when God interrupted their plans with his plans. Before they were married, an angel appeared to Mary and told her that she would bear a son and call his name Jesus, and that he would be the son of the highest. Understandably, she was unsure about how this would happen, because she was a virgin. And the angel told her that she would conceive by the action of the Holy Spirit, a miracle of God. And then some six months later, when Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant, he understandably decided to end their betrothal. But because he was an honorable and God-fearing young man, he was not willing to subject Mary to public disgrace. And so he planned to do this quietly. But an angel came to him as well, encouraging him not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, because the son conceived in her womb was of the Holy Spirit, and he would save his people from their sins. And so he married her. And... He did not have sexual relations with her until after that baby boy was born, as we're told in Matthew 1.25. Think about that. This young man controlled his God-given natural desires, which he had every reasonable expectation of giving expression to in his marriage, beginning on his wedding night. But by denying himself, he participated along with Mary in fulfilling the scripture which said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So Joseph lived out the truth that man shall not live by bread alone or by sexuality alone but instead shall live by every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord. So, if I can say this, if Joseph did this, so can you. You won't be, get sick by doing it. You won't die by doing it. You won't even get traumatized by waiting until the right time. Now think of those two arriving in Bethlehem they had traveled some 90 miles, probably on foot, Mary perhaps on a donkey, and she's in the final days of pregnancy, but so many people had come to be registered for the census that the inn was full, and so they had to shelter in a stable. And not long after they arrived, labor started. But don't think for a moment that this young man, Joseph, knew how to help Mary have a baby. And don't think for a moment that she could easily handle her first labor and delivery on her own. No, unlike the movies, it would be much more realistic to think that a call for help went out and the local midwife came running along with her helpers. Women helping women 
in this most important event of birth, as they've always done since the beginning, and a baby is born with their help. And the midwife and her helpers are witnesses that Mary is a virgin. And after Mary nursed the baby, and he was cleaned and wrapped up tightly for his comfort, and before she put him in the manger, imagine her holding him, and Joseph looking over her shoulder like all couples do, to look into the face of that little child. Now they, they know who he is, and they have some idea about what he will do. But, but how can they grasp that they're holding Emmanuel, God, God, with us. It was by faith. It was by their believing, obeying, trust in the word of God that a virgin gave birth to a child whose very purpose was to be slain for sinners. So again, bringing marriage and childbearing together with the advent of Christ, let's look at Psalm 139. Now the first 12 verses of Psalm 139 tell us that our Creator has an intimate knowledge of us. He sees our actions, He hears our words, and knows them before we can get them out of our mouths. He knows and examines and searches out the motives and intentions of our hearts. There is nowhere to hide. There is no way to hide from Him. He knows us exhaustively and comprehensively in a way that is overwhelming and maybe even frightening. And that's one reason why prominent atheists like Richard Dawkins or the late Christopher Hitchens hate God. They don't like the thought of Him looking at them in this way. But God's thoughtful gaze is only frightening because of the sin and depravity of the human heart. But for redeemed sinners who have been brought to repentance and faith, the fact that God is looking at them in this way means that He is thinking of them with gospel grace. And we can say, along with David in verse 17 of Psalm 139, how precious to me are your thoughts of God and how vast are the sum. And then verse 13 through 17 of Psalm 139, read like this. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me, or you knit me together, or you wove me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. In other words, in my mother's womb. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of so this is a fascinating glimpse into how the all-seeing God participates in the formation of the, the, the minutest parts of our bodies in our mother's womb from conception. 
The words used of knitting together and weaving and covering over are a very graphic word picture that's actually scientifically correct. And think of this. God himself is at work in this way in the wounds of every pregnant woman all over the world at this very moment. He is keenly interested in new life. He sees those little children in the womb. And Psalm 139 not only tells us that our bodies were fashioned by Him, it goes on to say that our days were fashioned by Him as well. And they were written down in the Father's book before they even happened. Now, we might balk at being fenced in to a purpose in life that we had no part in choosing. But as it is written here in Psalm 139, and in many other passages, our days were fashioned for us. And they were written down in his book before they happened. Which means that every birth and every death has purpose and meaning. It means that every miscarriage, every disability, every deformity has purpose So it's good to muse on all that for ourselves. But you know, this is also true of the Lord Jesus Christ. The human body of the Son of God was formed and knit together and covered over in Mary's womb under the watchful eye and the skillful hand of God the Father. At a particular moment in time, in a way we just don't comprehend, a miraculous conception took place in the womb of Mary and a little human body began to form. First one cell, and then two cells, and then four, and then eight, and then sixteen, and so on. And then at a, at a point in time, some of those cells began to form the, the members of that little body. And other cells went to form the, uh, the placenta, and the amniotic sac, and all the needed uh, apparatus for sustaining and then birthing that little baby boy. And all the while, God the Father is gazing upon and thinking about and participating in the formation of that human body of His beloved Son, the body which was fashioned in order to be crucified. And, as it is written in Psalm 139, each one of the days of His life had also already been fashioned and were written down in His Father's book. Even that day, that particular day, when he would be crucified on a Roman cross, on a hill outside of Jerusalem at the time of the Passover in about the year 30 AD. This is what's expressed in Revelation 13 verse 8, which speaks of Christ as the Lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. And this is what the gathered church proclaimed in Acts 4, when they confessed that the events of the death of Christ had happened just as the hand and the plan of God had determined would happen beforehand. You see, like us, Jesus was fenced into a purpose for his life, preordained by his Father, and written down in many of the scrolls of the Father's book. A difficult purpose for sure, but a purpose that he embraced because there was joy on the other side of it. But unlike us, as he was growing up, he actually heard his purpose in the scripture readings 
in the synagogue every Sabbath day. Like Isaiah 53. Or maybe like Psalm 22. Where he would hear how God would forsake him as he hung on the cross. And, how, and he would hear the words that the crowds would hurl at him in mockery. And of how, what the soldiers would do to his, with his clothing. He would even hear about his inner thoughts and feelings. Those are described in Psalm 22 as well. And a welling up of thankfulness and praise as he looked forward to singing with us and proclaiming the name of the Father with us in our church meetings. Read Psalm 22. And that leads us to Psalm 40, verses 6, 7, and 8, which read like this. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is within my heart. You've given me an open ear. Other translations say, My ears you have opened. And the idea here is of a person gaining increasing ability to understand what he's hearing. Things that he hadn't been able to grasp so what do these verses mean? Well, Psalm 40 is written by David, praising and thanking God for rescuing him and asking God to continue to rescue him from enemies that were too strong for him, even from his own sin. And here in the middle of this psalm are these three verses that stand out from the others. So is David speaking of himself here? as the one who has been written about in the book of God and come to do God's will. No, David is not speaking of himself. Dave, God has shown David a vision of a future event. And he's, he's watching a scene unfold before his eyes. David's watching the Son of God address the Father about the animal sacrifices and how sin will be defeated. Now how do I know that? What Hebrews 10 tells us. Here are the first four verses of Hebrews 10. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of those things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins, year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So in these four verses, the author of Hebrews is explaining verse 6 of Psalm 40. He's telling us why it is that God does not delight in sacrifices and offerings. And the reason is that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And this naturally leads us to wonder why in the world God commanded His people to make those very sacrifices 
if they did not take away sin and if you did not delight in them? God, what are you doing? Well, the answer to that is that the sacrifices were not for God's sake. He didn't need them. But they were to remind people year after year after year after year, every time they came to offer those sacrifices, that they were sinners. But also to remind them of, of God's ancient promise that He Himself would one day offer His own Son as the sacrifice that would actually take away sin. So in the animal sacrifices, God is communicating gospel grace to sinners. And then in verses 5 through 7 of Hebrews 10, the author quotes Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, as God's solution to the problem of sin. He writes, Therefore, or because of the ineffectiveness of the animal sacrifices, when He, or when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. So the author of Hebrews tells us that when Christ came into the world, he said something. He said something. What did he say? The words of Psalm 40, verses 6, 7, and 8. Who is he speaking to? His Father. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. So Psalm 40, 6 through 8, is the Son speaking to the Father because his ears have now been opened. He now understands about the utter inadequacy of the animal sacrifices. He now understands that his body has been specifically fashioned to be the sacrifice for sinners, the only and acceptable sacrifice that could actually take away all of the sins of all of His people for all time. Every last one of them. And the Greek grammar tells us that Christ didn't just say this once. This is the theme of His life. This is what is uppermost in His mind. This is His earnest prayer. This is His motivation for everything that He did. Okay? But when did he say these words? We don't read of it in the Gospels. Fair enough. But it might actually be there, hidden in plain sight. So let's look at that. So first of all, Psalm 40 is the Son talking to the Father. There's communication between those two about what Christ is to do. It's maybe kind of like a private conversation. But, but publicly, John records Jesus saying things like this, I came not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And we find Jesus in the garden asking His Father, If it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So do you hear the echo of Psalm 40? Right there. And we have a story. So, from a baby... Jesus grows to a toddler and then to a child and then into mature, into puberty. And in human experience, as we know it, he could not have known who he was as an infant. 
and were given no clue that as a two-year-old he was spouting scripture or that at six he was uprooting trees. In fact, we are told that the first of the miracles that revealed who he was happened at a wedding when he was 30. But as Psalm 40 tells us, there was a day when the ears of Jesus were opened and he realized with clarity who he was and his father's purpose for his body. Now, there's a point in a boy's life, usually beginning at age 12 or 13, when he begins to put away childish play because he has this growing desire to do real things. He wants to be a man. So remember, at age 12, the boy Jesus went up with his parents to the yearly feast of the Passover. And when it came time to go home, he remained behind. And this story is included in Luke 2 for a good reason. It gives us a glimpse into his thoughts and understanding at age 12, up close and very real. Remember when his parents found him in the temple after three days of searching? Mary rebuked him. Son, why have you done this to us? Look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. Anxiously. Yeah, that Greek word has intensity. And it means to be painfully distressed and sorrowful. Have you ever seen a mother at a, at a, in a public venue suddenly realize that one of her children is missing? Yeah, more than anxious, more like frantic. Yeah. And it's now in three days. And the 12-year-old Jesus responds to Mary, well, Why did you seek me? Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? Didn't you know that, mother? I've got to be here. I have a job to do. And I want to get off. And what was his father's business that took place in the father's house, in the temple? This 12-year-old had just seen the lambs slaughtered for the Passover feast. Now, we don't know if he understood everything, but his ears had been opened enough that he knew who he was, and he wanted to pursue his father's purpose for his life today, right now. So do you hear the echo of Psalm 40 in the words of that 12-year-old boy? To his mother... Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? To his heavenly father, Father, I, I've come. Look, I'm here. Just as it is written in the scroll of your book. I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. Scriptures just come alive for him. He was in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. He not only answered their questions, he asked them questions. And he answered those questions, probably with truths they, they never heard before. So you see what's going on here? Not only is the prophecy of the opening of his ears in Psalm 40 coming to reality, but the prophecy of Isaiah 50, verses 4 and 5, is also beginning to be fulfilled. Let me read it. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, so that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. 
He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. There's a fire in the belly of this young boy, but he's only 12, and it's not yet time for him to go and do. He's not ready. So as Luke 2 goes on to say, he went home and was subject to his parents, and he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. And when he was 30 years old, he was ready. He was wise, he was mature, and it was time for him to stand up, stand up, and get on with it. And his heavenly father released him. Go, son, do it. And early in the fourth year of his ministry, he set his face to go to Jerusalem to finish his father's business, which was nothing less than the forgiveness of sin and the removal of everything that stood between God and sinners. And he walked right to the cross with manly courage. And he acted like a man all the way to the end. And he laid his life down for his bride. The man, Christ Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And right here again, we find Mary standing with the Apostle John at the foot of the cross seeing her grown son crucified and struggling in agony. He is naked. His body is shredded and covered with blood and urine and excrement because that's what happens under torture. And she hears some of his last words croaking out of his parched throat. And isn't this the very thing that Simeon had in mind? when he told her that day that she and Joseph brought the baby Jesus to the temple. A sword, he said, will pierce through your own soul also. Mm. Can you just sense the pain and shock in her mother's heart? This is the real life experience of Mary. Suffering deeply because she is his mother. And just three days later, on Sunday evening, she is gathered with the eleven apostles and others. And the resurrected, glorified Christ just appears in their midst. And he says to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Well, that includes Psalm 40, right? but also Psalm 2 and Psalm 8 and 15 and 22 and 110 and 118 among many that could be mentioned. Back to the upper room. And he opened their understanding so that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Now, if it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, then Mary could not have escaped the pain of seeing her son suffer that awful death. So in a very real way, Mary experienced what it really means, that God works all things together for the good, even those heartrending experiences. But afterwards, 
she had her mind open to comprehend the scriptures. She tasted of the marvelous goodness of God. When she understood what her son had accomplished in his death, which no doubt made that painful moment at the foot of the cross deeply meaningful to her. And as he told those gathered that evening, in his death, our Savior actually and literally fulfilled, meaning accomplished, every single Old Testament ceremony, sacrifice, and offering. For instance, his death was the real circumcision. He was the real Passover lamb. He was the real scapegoat, dying alone and forsaken. He was the real sin offering. He was the real high priest. But he was sinless and pure. And he didn't need to offer any sacrifice for himself. Therefore, he had the right and the authority to enter right into the holy place, the real holy place, right into the presence of the Father, to offer his own life's blood as in payment for the very real sins of a very real sinful people. And rest assured, that payment was accepted. And his people were forgiven. God's wrath against them appeased. Justice had been served. Their sins and lawless deeds to be remembered against them no more. And all of that is what it means when it says he made propitiation for the sins of his people. You see, our Savior accomplished something tangible and real in his death. He purged our sins, as we're told in Hebrews 1 verse 3. He accomplished the cleansing of his people from all of their sin, past, present, and future, all of it. In other words, he justified his people, meaning they were set free from condemnation, condemned no more. His death unleashed all the gospel promises of God in the new covenant. And grace, like a mighty flood, flowed out and sank down into the deepest, darkest corners of the hearts of men and women. Sinking down just as far as the curse was found, right down to you and I. And where sin abounded, grace abounded even more, bringing repentance and faith. Forgiveness and cleansing, restoration and new life and real eternal hope. And that flood of grace is continuing to flow over the world and it's reached all the way to us right here tonight. And that's why we're here. And beyond all that, there's much more. Because at the end, there's a wedding to attend. The wedding of Christ and His bride, the church, is yet to come. And he is looking forward to that day with great anticipation. What shall we say to these things then? If God is for us, who in the world can be against us? For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is true. So just one short application in closing. Because of all this, I want to encourage you, beginning this Christmas, to take care not to separate 
the wonder of the little baby lying in the manger, away from the man who died forsaken and alone for sinners. See his birth in the light of his death and rejoice. If Jesus is the reason for the season, then it stands to reason that we ought to give him a significant place in our celebrations. So I just want to encourage you, block out significant time on that day to acknowledge Him, to worship Him, and to praise Him. Gather your family and friends together and thank the Father for sending the Son into the world to save sinners, to save you. And thank the Father for sending the Holy Spirit to apply the finished work of the Son to sinners. Sing the songs of the faith. Read the stories in Matthew and Luke. Read the prophecies. And give Christ the place He deserves on that day. And know some real soul-satisfying meaning in your gathering. And go farther. Establish this as a family tradition. And hand it down from generation to generation. Of rejoicing together in the advent of Christ. And keeping His death firmly embedded in His birth. Let's pray. Holy Father, as it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which you have prepared for those who love you. But you have revealed them to us through your Spirit. And we, we revel and rejoice in what you have opened up to us in salvation that we can hardly understand why we are standing before you cleansed in Christ. But we thank you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested in a great Bible college here in the area, check out calchristiancollege.edu. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Thank you.